the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show. This is Jason Williams. I am State Executive Director and founder of the Taxpayers Association of Oregon. Been fighting your taxes for 20 years plus. And I'm so glad to be able to do the show today because there was a big cultural event that just happened this weekend. And I want to get right into it. I love talking about culture and entertainment because some of this defines where America is going. And I want to talk about Amazon's debut of their Lord of the Rings spinoff called Rings of Power. This is a big show. It's being called the most expensive film project in American history at $1 billion. First of all, it cost Amazon $200 million just to buy the rights to Lord of the Rings and the whole universe that it represents. $200 million just to buy the rights. And then... To produce this show that just debuted this weekend, around $50 million per one-hour episode. Wow. This is so big. Uh, Business Insider was interviewing some uh, Amazon people involved in the project, and they said, if this does not go well, uh, this may change how Amazon Prime does their movies. It's that big. Now, the other thing that makes this so big is that Amazon is putting a billion dollars behind this one book series, Lord of the Rings, Hobbit, its universe. And Lord of the Rings itself is the third best-selling book, fiction book of all time, of all languages. And uh, it is a cultural phenomenon in itself, Lord of the Rings. It has been translated in more languages. It's in the top 50 most translated books, fiction or nonfiction, of all books that have ever been written. This book by J.R.R. Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, has spread around the globe. And it is, as I said, there is something about this book that really resonates with people. And if you read it, or even if you watch the movies, there were three movies done on it. One of one of those movies actually won so many Academy Awards, it is tied for the most Academy Awards ever for a film. This is how big this Lord of the Rings movement and uh, in influence is. And if you read it, you will know, or if you watch the movie, you will know, man, this story of these hobbits and of this journey they take, it's so real. The evil is represented so realistic the, the conflict between good and evil, innocence, honor, friendship, temptation. Uh, where did this come from? Why has this book, unlike all other authors, been the third best-selling book of fiction of all time? Well, I want to give you a little secret, and I want to go. I want to talk about the book 
before we talk about Amazon putting a billion dollars into it. Tolkien, the author, this book, if you want to know why the, the good and evil is so real, it's because Tolkien was influenced when he was a soldier in World War I in the trenches. He's been hospitalized. He lost almost every single friend he had in his battalion. It was a, a horrific experience. And I guess when you watch society collapse like it did in World War I, it, it scars you. And it really hurt him, Tolkien. And, but he did not lose his faith. He um, always trusted in God. He was kind of a very devout Catholic man. And he came out of that World War I and all of that, that pit of darkness of the world and to see society crumble around you. He wanted to make life better. He really believed in heroes. He wanted – one of his dreams was, I want to be able to do a mythology for the British people, my people. I saw the world come apart. I want to make it better. He never got around to doing that. It, by the way, the British people don't have a mythology there's a Norse mythology and a Greek and a Roman. Uh, Britain was conquered so many times early on. Their history was wiped out. Their cultural mytho- mythological stories were wiped out. Tolkien knew this, and he wanted people to have a chance to have something to believe in. So over time, he wrote The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings and built a whole world that really talks very intimately about heroism and evil and it really resonates with people. And, uh, and by the way, with his faith, another one of his friends, C.S. Lewis, you know him, Chronicles of Narnia, Screw Tape Letters. He, when he served in World War One, C.S. Lewis lost his faith. He walked away from God and became an atheist for a very long period of time. But when Lewis and Tolkien became friends. They worked together, and they also hanged out at a bar. Uh, they formed a group called the Inklings, and they had other famous writers. Imagine that. Famous writers, J.R. Tolkien of Lord of the Rings with the Chronicles of Narnia's C.S. Lewis at a bar drinking every week. I would have loved to have been there. The bar's still there. I want to go there someday. But when C.S. Lewis saw Tolkien's faith, it brought C.S. Lewis back to the faith. And so C.S. Lewis went from being an atheist to being one of the Christians' best defenders of the 20th century, one of the best apologists. Um, you know, that's that was very unique about Tolkien's faith. He uh, Tolkien also spent just a small amount of time in translation of a Bible, the Jerusalem Bible, um, so he, there, Tolkien has an amazing story. He served in World War One, World War Two. He's he's written this this book that has inspired the world. I just think when you look at some of the best selling works of history, there's a story there. And I, and when I look at that story, I see I see God's God's fingerprints there. Okay, so now that I just told you about this amazing man and his book series and his world of Lord of the Rings. Along comes Jeff Bezos a few years ago. He puts down a quarter of a billion just for the rights to be able to do a spinoff from Lord of the Rings. It's a prehistory. We'll be calling it spinoff, but what I'm really talking about is events that happened in that world a thousand years before or so. So it gets bought out for the rights, and the first thing that we get warning signs that this is not going to go well 
They're going to create this this series. It's called Rings of Power. It's, it's based in the Lord of the Rings universe, and some of the characters are in it. So Amazon comes up with a series, Rings of Powers, putting up a billion dollars in it, and the early the early signs was that Jeff Bezos was going to stick it full of sex and violence, which is just just uh, unacceptable for someone to do with um, Tolkien's worth work as a devout Catholic and his his um, to, to make this family friendly, you know his family-friendly tale into sex and violence. In fact, the actors that were hired, the casting call said that we are looking for actors who are okay with nude scenes. So people luckily rose against that. In fact, there was a headline I saw that says, fans beg Amazon to keep Middle Earth clean, and it worked. They knocked that out. Um, then, they, you know, there's a little commercialization of Tolkien. They introduced these candy bars and ice cream to go along with the show, and I think a Lord of the Rings-themed ice cream. I don't know. Tolkien took his fantasy very seriously. In fact, interesting story. When he, C.S. Lewis, came to him uh, with the Chronicles of Narnia, the first draft allowed Tolkien to read it, and Tolkien got mad at C.S. Lewis because he says, hey, you've got you've got witches and you've got minotaurs, you've got all these characters, but you've got Father Christmas in the Chronicles of Narnia. He doesn't belong there. Tolkien just took his his fantasy world so seriously. It's like you have these laws, you can't violate them. Anyways, we'll just take that the, the fact that they're commercializing it. It's just a bad sign. Now, there's all this controversy that's been going all year long up to what happened this weekend, the debut of this Rings of Power series from Amazon. Um, a lot of controversy. We're not going to get into all of it. Some of it was kind of silly, like, you know, if you have female dwarves, they should have beards. People say no. There's talks of, of there's racial issues involved. But um, the thing that I really disliked the most was that the show, the people behind the show began to attack Tolkien himself. And they were going to build a show around his work and they began to attack him. And I think that this is um, – and the actors did it too. Now, we're going to explain a little bit about this on the other side of the break. But I want to say that this is a trend in America where everyone is bad-mouthing every author, journalist, artist. As long as they're not alive, people are finding fault in them and attacking them. And that is what this show, based on Tolkien's work – this billion-dollar show slowly began to do this year. So we'll get to the I'll, – I'll tell you the details on the other side of the, the segment. Hang in there on the Georgine Rice Show. Thank you. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show. This is Jason Williams. I am founder and executive director of the Taxpayers Association of Oregon. Spend most of my, my adult life trying to lower your taxes. We're talking today about Amazon's new Lord of the Rings project. It's the most expensive film project in history. It's a billion dollars. They made a spinoff show of Lord of the Rings. It's called Rings of Power. It just debuted this weekend. And if you're not familiar, Lord of the Rings is the third best-selling, by one measure, book of all time for a fiction book. And so let's talk about this. So the show 
right before the debut this weekend, the months prior, uh, the writers started talking about, well, you know, Tolkien's a little bit outdated, and we really need to update him for the real world. Okay, that's that was a warning. And then the some of the actors and other show runners behind it began saying, you know, Tolkien is really not he wasn't diverse enough. And because he wasn't diverse diverse enough, this writer, Tolkien and Lord of the Rings and everything he wrote wasn't accessible to people. People couldn't enjoy it because he wasn't diverse enough. Now I just told you earlier that this book is in the top fifty most translated books of all time, of all languages. So for them to say people could not enjoy Lord of the Rings because it wasn't diverse enough is hooey. But why are these people attacking Tolkien, the people that are putting on the show? They're spending a billion dollars to do a show around Tolkien's universe, and they are now attacking him. Well, in fact, one interesting thing with the diversity, the show didn't leak out very many details, but they did leak out that they were going to have female orcs, orc monsters, because apparently, and they were proud of this, that they you get to see more female monsters in this show because apparently Tolkien and Lord of the Rings, they didn't have enough female monsters. That is how insane some of this new political correctness has become. So the sh- and I want to say this this idea about attacking authors who they say he needs to be brought up to date. He was alive when I was alive. He just died a few decades ago. But the idea of Amazon attacking authors and artists uh, who are now dead, I think is terrible. Now, I'll give you another example. This is going to be a little bit complicated, but it's important. This It's big. There's another show, Amazon. One of their top shows is called The Boys. It's about a group of superheroes. And Amazon is investing hundreds of millions of dollars into this series. They're on season three. So the series is big. It's about superheroes, and it's kind of a nasty superhero film. It's about a team of superheroes who America loves. They are super patriotic, but behind the scenes, these superheroes, well, they lie, they cheat, they steal, they sexually harass everyone, they deal in illegal drugs, they actually kill children needlessly. I mean, what they do, it's kind of like a guilty pleasure, let's make superheroes evil, and let's laugh at America for being patriotic and loving superheroes. Okay, that sounds strange like a show, but I'm I'm telling you, this is one of the most popular original Amazon shows called The Boys, hundreds of million dollars put in this on, series number three. The creator behind it of the show um, actually explains how not only do they tear down superheroes and America's love for superheroes in the show – but he says it's all because superheroes were born out of fascism and white supremacy. And I'll quote him, Eric Kripke from The Hollywood Reporter, when he describes superheroes as, quote, well, being born, quote, undeniable fascist underpinnings to it. They're, they're there to protect white patriotic America. And he goes on saying superheroes are inherently mega. So it's like, why would anyone say that? Why would you say that Superman and Batman and Captain America were born out of out of fascism? Because they say it's because Superman loved America, you know, truth, justice, the American way. 
Captain America was all about loyalty to America and that this liberal guy who created the show is saying that's really fascist. To love, to be patriotic is fascism. Um, so, I mean, it's it's crazy. But I just want to give you an, an, an example on how not only did Amazon spend a billion dollars to buy Tolkien's work so they could do a show and they end up liberally attacking Tolkien. But they did it in this other show called The Boys where they spend, once again, a quarter of a billion dollars doing a show making fun of America and and attacking the people who created Superman and Batman, Captain America. And let me just say, to call those people that created Superman fascist, the two people that created Superman were both Jewish, and I believe both of them served in World War II. The two people that created Batman were Jewish. Stan Lee, who created the whole Marvel Universe, Spider-Man, Hulk, Thor, he grew up in a Jewish home. Stan Lee served in World War II, he was an illustrator. Can you believe it? Um, but it's all part of the left. We're going under this leftist revolution in America, and the left always attacks history, and they make it worse. And I will uh, let me give you one more example of something Amazon has done. There was this book series called the Su- The Summer I Felt Pretty, or The Summer I Became Pretty, and it's a popular teen romance novel it's a mild teen romance novel amazon bought the rights to it we're going to make it's teens are loving it it's a popular book series so they took that book series and it wasn't enough to tell the story they decided to add in more drinking they decided to add in pot smoking decided up the profane profanity words they added in of course more sex and so it's like why amazon why would you take a book that was already popular with teens and just make it a movie? Instead, they took that book, bought the rights, and then dumped all of this garbage into it. <laughs> Is that what teens need more of? Um, you know, more with the uh, the pot smoking and the drinking and sleeping around? I, I, I don't think so. But Amazon... I'm telling you, uh, I'm really questioning my loyalty to Amazon. Uh, And then Amazon's been banning conservative books. There was a document and movies. There was a documentary on Clarence Thomas that Amazon said, "Yeah, we're not going to sell it on our platform." Man, we can't even do documentaries on our own Supreme Court justice. And Amazon just says no because they get pressure. Anyways, I began this whole you know segment. And half hour talking about the Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power series on Amazon. They spent a billion dollars. It got caught up in politics and it debuted this weekend and it's, and it's turned out to be a big flop. People who watch the show say, yeah, you can feel that there's politics in it. You can feel like it's kind of agenda driven. And that's what happens when you let politics or agenda driven show get in there and, and screw up your movie. And, and, you're talking a billion dollars at stake here. It's cost to do this 10-part series, and they're, they're messing it up. Elon Musk weighed in, the world's richest man, weighed in on the second world's richest man's movie, and he said he watched it, and he says he tweeted out almost every male character so far as a coward, a jerk, or both. Tolkien is rolling in his grave. So it's funny to see these um, 
people attack the show. I hope it gets better. I hope Amazon and this billion-dollar Tolkien series will go back to what Tolkien's about, and that's a little bit of faith about heroism, about vivid, lucid differences between good and evil and the struggle in between. Tolkien was a lot about adventurism, and this show just lacks it. It just lacks it. And I think that um, this has been a, a, this is a huge cultural entertainment moment. Uh, let's see what happens on the rest of the show. They could still redeem themselves. But I just want to say, finally, stop attacking Tolkien. Stop Amazon. Stop attacking America's superheroes. Stop attacking creators who are dead and can't fight back. Stop attacking our, our, our artists and our authors. And let the people have the heroism that they need. All right. We'll be back on the other segment. Keep with us on The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to The Georgine Rice Show. This is Jason Williams, executive director and founder of the Taxpayers Association of Oregon. I'm the group that's for 23 years has been protecting your taxes, defeating taxes at the ballot box in state legislatures and all kinds of good stuff. But hey, uh, on this show, I really want to have a chance to talk about Measure 114, they are saying that this is the most restrictive gun measure in America on the ballot, and Oregonians are going to have a chance to vote on this. I mean, the ballots are going to be in the mail. You're going to start seeing them in just a few weeks. And here is this consequential measure. It's coming up, so I'm glad to have a chance to uh, bring on an NRA um, regional affairs person, Avine Klein, who knows and has been studying what's going on and can help allow us to see the naked truth behind this measure, what it does and what it doesn't do. Aveen, welcome to the program. Jason, thank you so much for having me on to discuss ballot measure 114. Yes, yes. Now, just when I look at it from a macro level, I see that there are like 100 rifles mentioned in this bill. Uh, I see that there is a ban on magazines saying you can't put so many you know bullets into a gun including handguns i see that there is a permitting process uh and they're now trying to turn police stations into training uh operations for to train people on uh guns uh can you help us walk us through what you see as the the uh the most consequential parts of this measure this gun control measure before us yeah absolutely and you're you're definitely correct the the voters of oregon are going to have the chance to vote on the most egregious ballot initiative on gun control in the country and that's going to come november 8th and as you mentioned ballot boxes are the ballots are going to start going out folks are going to start seeing those in their mailboxes so they need to know exactly what's going on on measure 114 because the way it's packaged is misleading to voters. I'll start with just the title itself, the reduction of violence, gun violence, is absolutely misleading. Everything in this measure has been proven to not affect crime, to not affect gun violence, because it doesn't go after criminals. It goes after law-abiding gun owners in Oregon. So from the 30,000-foot level, 
let's talk about the, the three big things that this ballot measure does. The first, it's going to require a permit to purchase or transfer any future um, firearm and for you, your kids, your grandkids, in order to obtain a firearm in the future, should this pass, you're going to be required to get a permit. And I'll walk you through all the details of what's going to be required to obtain that permit because it is um, an, an exhaustive list of, of requirements that are very, very hard to meet. Um, the second thing that it does, it's going to ban any magazine over 10 rounds. Uh, they're claiming that it'll grandfather in those magazines that you already own, those standard issue magazines in your handgun, uh, but they're very, very limited to where they'll be allowed to be used. Uh, and the third thing is this creates a government registry of firearm owners' personal information. We've seen in the past, right, registry mm -hmm. is the first step to confiscation, and we've seen in issues like what happened in California where they have a list, a registry of all firearm owners' information, and it was just leaked to the public. We've got all sorts of issues within this, but from the 30,000-foot level, those are the three big things this ballot measure does. Wow, wow. Let's focus on this the banning of the magazines, because um, I know I shared with you previously, but I never owned a, a gun until someone pulled out a gun on me in the middle of the freeway on I-84, and I realized I have no options when someone pulls out a gun. Uh, I wasn't part of this altercation. Uh, so I went and I said, I just need a small gun that will fit in my pocket. Uh, so I got a gun. It has 12 rounds. It fits in my pocket. And now I am told that this uh, is this is some type of assault gun. This is some type of mass, uh, you know, mass. Uh, what's what's the word? Mass um, capacity uh, ammunition. Uh, what's going to happen to people? Because I imagine there are thousands of handguns where it's 12 rounds, not 10 rounds. This thing – so what are they going to be forced to do if they have a, if they own a 12-round? Yeah, absolutely. So anything over 10 rounds. Uh, and folks most commonly associate that to a handgun or, or a rifle magazine. Uh, this affects – shotguns as well but let's talk about those magazines like yours those 12 rounds what happens if you currently own a magazine over 10 rounds well the proponents of this measure are claiming that you can keep them they're grandfathered in well that's not exactly true because if you have a magazine over 10 rounds and should this pass in november you are only allowed to use that on your own personal property at a shooting range or while engaged in hunting or shooting sports so this is a very, very limited amount of places that you're able to carry oh, a standard issue magazine. Wait a minute. You, now I'm going through the list. You says you can have that gun on your own personal property. You could use it if you're actively hunting or a shooting range. You just left something out. What about if I am walking down downtown Portland in a high crime area and I fear for my life? Am I not able to possess my 12-round Handgun? If this measure passes, you are not allowed to have that in the cartridge of your firearm. Wow. Wow. And uh, so this, basically, this this just kind of voids hundreds of different types of handguns in Oregon uh, for 
for uses of, of what's, let's just call it personal safety. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, under this measure, again, should this pass, this is why it's so important important that Oregonians vote no on Measure 114, is this is just the tip of the iceberg. Right? We're talking about self-defense, the right to self-defense outside the home, which the Supreme Court of the United States just said in Bruin, you have that right. Uh, this is going to limit you to 10 rounds outside of your home, walking in a high crime area in downtown Portland. And you, uh, you were mentioning shotguns because some shotguns can have a capacity of over 10 rounds that you could load into it. So therefore, shotguns would be basically void in Oregon, except for those extreme few circumstances. Yeah, under the the language in this measure, it says anything with the capacity to accept more than 10 rounds. Most modern shotguns with a barrel length of over 21 inches, which is the common ones that you're using for shooting sports, for, for hunting, unless that is permanently altered so that it cannot accept more than 10 rounds, it's, it's going to be banned under this. And we talk about shotguns. Folks are like, well, you know, I only have three or I can only just needs to be permanently altered. We talk about these mini rounds, right? They're common for self-defense. Your shotgun has the capacity to accept that, whether you load 10 in or not. Your gun has the capacity to accept it, so under this measure, it would be banned. And for those folks who enjoy waterfowl hunting and do the depredation geese hunt in, in the central flyway, and you add on that extended tube, your gun has yeah. the capacity to accept more than 10 rounds, and should this measure pass, it will be banned. Yeah, what about the transfer? So, like, if you have... If you're hunting, but you're traveling to the hunting location, can they nab you there and say, hey, you shouldn't be able to, uh, or you are coming home from a hunting trip and you're spending a few days visiting friends, are you, is your little 12-round rifle going to now be illegal? Under the letter of the law, this is where we get into the devils and the details. The issue when we have gun laws written by people who don't understand guns is what happens? How is this enforced? Will this be enforced? Can this even be enforced? We've got law enforcement in Oregon that's been defunded. They're short on staff. They're short on funding. Oh, yeah. How is this going to be implemented? How will this work? But under the letter of the law, your magazine that this passes will have to be stored separate in transfer while you're driving. So, that's an easy thing to do when we talk about a handgun and you take out your 10 round magazine and you store yes. that separately from your firearm. But I, what I, happens I, I think you're, you're onto something is that they don't really know the full ramifications of this. Well, we're going to head into a break and when we get back, we're going to take over some other alarming things that are in this bill. Ballots are going to be mailed out soon. You need to know about this because you're going to have a chance to vote on this consequential measure. We'll be right back here on the Georgine Rice show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show. This is Jason Williams sitting in for Georgine Rice. I am the executive director and founder of the Taxpayers Association of Oregon. I spent most of my adult life fighting for your lower taxes, lower gas taxes, lower cell phone taxes, lower beer taxes, the whole gambit and Today, I've got Avine Klein with the NRA. We're talking about Measure 114. Oregonians, you're going to vote on this 
in just a few weeks, you're going to have to make a decision. It's being called the most restrictive gun control measure in America. Uh, and so Oregon is facing this. We better know what this does. Uh, Aveen, what are some of the other things we're, we're missing on this measure? We covered about the magazine ban. Can't have guns with more than 10 bullets in it uh, or the even the ability to have more than 10 bullets in it. What's what's some other uh, alarming things on this bill? Yeah, Jason, we started with that because I think under this measure, that's the, the easiest one for folks to understand. This is common. It's been litigated. The NRA has brought two 10-round magazine cases all the way to the Supreme Court. But the one that, you know, this is the big piece here is ballot measure 114 that this pass will require a permit to purchase or transfer a firearm. And a lot of folks are, okay, what does that mean? You should get a permit. you got to go through a background check. You and I know you have to already do a background check yes. to, to obtain a firearm in Oregon. So what else does this do? In order to obtain a firearm in the future, should this pass, you need to get a permit. In order to apply for this permit, which costs you $65, and every five years you need to pay um, up to $50 to renew, you need to provide law enforcement with your legal name, current address, your telephone number, your date, place of birth, your physical description, fingerprints, your photograph, a signature, and any additional information deemed necessary by the law enforcement agency for the application. That's a lot of stuff. And that's a lot of things you've got to trust the government to be keeping protected. That singles you yes. out. All of a sudden, criminals know everything about you and that and that you've got firearms. Uh, you know, and let, me just, let, let me just say how right you are on that, because you said we got to have under this new measure, if it's passed, we will now have to supply even more personal information. Uh, just in the past 30 days, the IRS accidentally leaked information. Uh, the federal government accidentally leaked information about uh, law enforcement people and the, you know, that were involved in different conspiracy groups. Uh, so there was a law enforcement breach already um, in uh, already in uh, in Multnomah County. This was a while ago, but they made public every gun owners who went through the the uh, registration process, uh, and they made that that public, and so. We have a list just in the past 30 days alone of government leaking. Now we're saying we're going to have to add more personal information um, to a new database. Uh, and I'm concerned about this police. As you said, police, uh, before they defunded police in Portland, there was a police shortage. In fact, I think it was in January of that year of of COVID that some police officer wrote a letter to the Oregonian saying, we have massive police shortage. It's happening all over and now this measure, Measure 114, which you're going to vote on, it's going to be up on the ballot, would now make police in charge of all these databases, in charge of this new police training program for trying to get people to who want to give a gun to your son. You now have to go through the police and go through a, a training. Uh, that seems so burdensome to me. You're absolutely right. And this is all to exercise your fundamental rights under guaranteed by the, not only the Constitution of the United States, but the state Constitution of Oregon. And so, you know, that's all the information that's required 
to apply for this permit. Now, how do you get the permit? A concealed handgun license does not qualify as a permit. A hunter safety education course does not qualify as a permit. This is a separate permit that's going to be required. What do you need to do? You've already provided all of your information to law enforcement. Well, under this measure, a law enforcement agency, a certified law enforcement course, is required to obtain that permit. It's required a classroom training and an in-person live fire training requirement. You must bring a gun to a law enforcement class, certified law enforcement instructor class, show them that you can lock, load, unload, fire, and store a firearm in front of this certified law enforcement agency officer. Wow. What happens, right? We've got this issue. I've got a gun. I'm able to demonstrate that. But what if I'm a first-time firearm owner? Where do I get this gun? Is law enforcement going to provide that? Yeah. <laughs> they didn't think about that. They did not think Senate about that when they wrote this measure. And under Senate Bill 554, you know, we've got very limited, strict situations in Oregon where you can transfer a firearm, loan a firearm to somebody. Let's say your immediate family, you're directly watching them. Do you need to go to the class with them? How do first-time firearm owners obtain this permit? They need a permit to purchase the gun, but you can't get the permit without the gun because you have to show that you can lock, load, fire, and store a firearm in front of the law enforcement agency officer. Wow. Wow. Now, we, we talked about people in personal safety, like, if, you know, if you're walking into the most dangerous parts of Oregon. Uh, I don't think we talked about, like, what about, like, ranchers who deal with, like, wolves that come on their property or people that go out in the wild where you, if you have a rifle, you, and you're dealing with a pack of wolves or something, are you really supposed to only have... 10 rounds in your gun, in your rifle, if this measure passes. Am I getting that correct? Unless, again, if you are on your own personal property, so that better be that rancher's personal property, or you're engaged in hunting or shooting sports. That is the only time that your firearm is allowed to be loaded with more than 10 rounds in the chamber or in the magazine, excuse me. Wow. I mean, you could be out hiking, in, in bear country uh, or, you know, that there, there's a bear alert and you're out there hiking and uh, you have a handgun. I, I'm telling you, I don't feel safe with only 10 rounds trying to take out a bear, a charging bear. Um, now they're telling me that somehow we're going to stop shootings uh, if we just go from 12 rounds to 10 rounds. Uh, this is this is kind of crazy. Okay, any last any last things you want to raise the alarm on this measure one fourteen before the voters in Oregon? I do. You know, we've, we've talked a lot, but let's talk about funding. You know, under this bill, we said you know it's going to cost up to sixty five dollars to apply for this permit. You got to get a new permit every five years if you want to purchase a new firearm. But how much does this training course cost? You know, you have to take a course. You have to pass the course to get the permit to purchase or transfer a firearm in the future should this pass. There is no limit under this bill on how much law enforcement can charge 
you to take this course. They're already underfunded. The Oregon State Sheriff's Association has estimated this will cost law enforcement near, nearly $40 million each year in permit training. Wow. Our, our law enforcement agencies in Oregon don't have that kind of funding. There is no funding in this bill for that. So whose shoulders is that going to fall on? My guess is it's going to be the person who wants to take that course. And I'll add that there's also nothing in this bill that says law enforcement agencies have to offer the course. They're the only ones that can offer it. You can't go hmm. take an yeah. NRA certified pistol course. Nothing says they have to offer the course. If they don't have the funding ah, to do it, that is good. That's good. It? Well, I mean, let me just give one uh, closing thought, and that, that was this. Right now, this bill would be a huge bureaucracy and costly for our police. And right now, Portland police do not respond to people whose cars are stolen because they are so overwhelmed. And there's a thousand cars stolen a month in Portland. If they're not responding to a car being stolen, how much more do you think they're going to set up a bureaucratic training session? Avin, I want to say thank you for being on. We're going to be continue talking about the measure 114. Uh, I recommend a no vote based on this. Thank you for being here. Thank you for the opportunity, Jason. This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for Oregonians to defeat a bad gun control bill. So vote no on Measure 114. Thank you. Thank you. We'll be right back with some more good news updates. Thanks. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show. This is Jason Williams sitting in for Georgine. I'm executive director of the Taxpayers Association of Oregon. I've been spending 20 years helping to lower your taxes. And I got a great guest for you for this segment. It's Alex Scarlatos running in Congressional District Number 4. This is among the most watched races in the country. Why? Because you only need to change around 10 seats in Congress to flip who controls Congress. And they're looking at Oregon as a place where there may be a big seat change, and that will happen with Alex Scarlatos. And you may sound that may sound familiar. That's because he is the he's one of those uh, three Americans that were that was aboard that uh, Paris train when a terrorist suddenly pulled out a uh, a rifle, and uh, it was these three Americans that that took that guy down and saved a lot of lives. And they made a movie on him. Clint Eastwood did. Uh, he was featured in it. Uh, so it's like, oh, it's that guy. I know some other people will recognize him from Dancing with the Stars because he was on there. Uh, Alex, welcome to the program. How are you doing? Hey, Jason. I'm doing good. Thanks so much uh, for having me. I really appreciate it. Yes, yes. And I, I have to talk about that train story, if you don't mind. You probably said it a million times. But what was that actually like? You're there on a train. You're in Paris. You're just trying to travel, and then suddenly all hell breaks loose. Well, my I mean, my initial reaction was just total shock. It was almost like I didn't believe that it was happening, but I knew in the back of my mind that it was. Just kind of felt like my heart sank in my chest and time stopped for half a second. And uh, you just realize that this is actually happening and it's actually real life. And then, mm-hmm. you know, that was only for about two or three seconds. Then we kind of sprung into action. and. Uh, my friend, I hit my friend on the shoulder and said, let's go. And he tackled him and then I followed him and it was on from there. <laughs> yeah. Were you the guy that actually was able to, that when the rifle was dropped, you grabbed that and uh, 
this yeah, um, yeah. long story short you know my uh friend tackled him uh, ak-47 hit the ground Ooh. um and uh spencer was trying to choke him and then uh i tried to shoot him with the ak-47 it didn't work he pulled out handgun tried to shoot spencer with it i grabbed with a handgun uh then he pulled out a box cutter started cutting spencer with the box cutter Then kind of all three of us kind of got around him and started punching him, kicking him, doing whatever we could do. Uh, We kind of got control of him a little bit. I tried to shoot him with the handgun. That was empty, unfortunately. And then um, Spencer put him in another chokehold. I picked up the AK-47 and hit him in the head until he stopped fighting back. Then I watched him go unconscious from Spencer's chokehold. And then um, noticed that a gentleman had been shot in the neck before we got involved. And he was losing a tremendous amount of blood. So then Spencer went over and stopped wow. the bleeding. Um, and I unloaded all the weapons and went from there. Handled the situation for about another 15 or 20 minutes until we got to the train station. And uh, then police and EMTs came on board and uh, everything changed. And the gentleman that we shot in the neck made a full recovery thanks to Spencer. Wow. Wow. Thank you. Thank you for what you did. And as I said, they they made a movie out of it with uh, Clint Eastwood directing it. I, I I saw something somewhere. Maybe you can confirm the rumors. But was it true that that uh, he had called you guys to come in and be advisors, but he really wanted you to be the actors, and he didn't tell you until the last minute? Is that right? Yeah. So the whole thing is kind of an interesting story. We met him just by chance at like a party. And I kind of joked about how he should direct the movie from the book that we had written. And, you know, he said, well, send me a copy. You never know. And then Spencer, again, to his credit, sent him a copy of the book. Three days later, got the call that he wanted to do the movie. Um, And then after, yeah, uh, we helped write the script. We were consulting on the movie. And then only 10 days before it was starting to film. Wow. He said, you know, hey, why don't you guys do it again yourselves? And we said, do what? And he said, oh, you know do it again on the train. And we said, you know, yeah, we'll show the actors, you know, what happened and walk it through. Uh, and he said, no, no. Do you want to play yourselves in the movie? And, you know, that was just, you know, a total surprise again, because the movie was only 10 days away from filming the first scene. We thought they had actors picked out already. Yeah. And, uh, but of course we said, yes, you know, when Clint asked you to do something, you say yes. So we did. And it was a great, it was a great time. And it's a very accurate movie, if nothing else. <laughs> wow, wow. And uh, yeah, Clint Eastwood is good at that. Um, what was it like seeing, uh, the last question I'll ask, what was it like seeing yourself on the big screen? Honestly, um, we were so used to watching ourselves in like interviews and things like that, that it wasn't <laughs> very shocking. Yeah. It was honestly just a little bit funny for us, um, just seeing each other act. I mean, I think we all thought we did a great job acting, but then seeing each other act, we kind of made fun of each other quite a bit, and it was a good time. But uh, like I said, I mean, honestly, it's a very accurate movie. I mean, what happened in the movie is exactly what happened that day, and that's really all we cared about. Yeah, and now suddenly you're making a run for Congress. What makes you want to run, and what are the big issues that you care about? Yeah, well, I wouldn't say suddenly because it was kind of a long time coming in a lot of ways. I mean, I came home after doing the movie and saw how bad things were in this district after, you know, one party rule for about 40 years in Oregon. And uh, 
it just kind of made me want to do something. And I started learning why it was the poorest congressional district in the state. Hmm. I started learning, you know, why the, the reasons behind a lot of these issues that we're facing here in the fourth congressional district of Oregon. And after looking into it, you know, and realizing again, that we'd had the same congressman for 36 years, Democrat government uh, in the state level for about 40 years, I just decided, you know, Hey, that there needs to be a change. And I think that I'm someone that could help bring it about. And so I decided to run for office and I ran last cycle against the incumbent Congressman DeFazio, uh, 36 year incumbent. Unfortunately, we came up just short. The incumbency has a lot of advantages, of course. Yes. And then he decided to retire this cycle. And so we decided to run again. And I announced, and, you know, it's a very different race as an open seat. And the woman that I'm running against, I mean, she's been a career politician all her life herself. And so uh, just trying to draw that contrast between a political outsider and someone that's been there forever. Um, but it's uh, we stand a much better chance of winning now that there's no incumbent, so we're pretty excited. Yes. Um, in fact, there was something uh, that that uh, you had posted, and I just reposted it on my uh, on my coalition blog, Oregon Catalyst. But that your opponent voted for a tax increase on hospitals and nursing homes, and here we are. Oregon has an as among the worst nursing shortages, and she raised taxes on hospitals. That's insane. Can you say anything more about that? Well, I mean, yeah, hospitals is one thing, too. But, I mean, yeah, nursing homes, for God's sakes. I mean, that's nursing homes are already very expensive, and yeah, I'm sure anyone that has someone in elder care can relate to that. And then increasing their taxes, which just gets passed on to, to the consumer at the end of the day. I mean, that's just absolutely insane. And this is also, you know, an older district, in addition to being the poorest district in Oregon. And, I mean, beyond her voting record, too, I mean, just like the inflation and gas prices we've seen, uh, this is a very rural district. You know, a lot of people have to commute to work. You know, there's trucking is a huge industry here, too. So yeah. diesel at around $6 a gallon hurts everyone. Wow. Uh, the people in this district can afford this inflation and these gas prices are the least of anyone in Oregon. Yeah. And I will say before the pandemic hit, the Kaiser Family Foundation did a study on hospital capacity, and this is basically nurse, nurses available, bed availability. Oregon was rated number 50th for the number of available beds, which is a measurement of nurses. And that, that we were going into COVID being the least hospital bed capacity uh, in the state, in the country. And then when the COVID hit, there were people, there was one hospital in Roseburg that had to put people in the parking lot. And so the idea that they always look to taxes uh, is something that um, it has actual consequence. Uh, and um, that because of that, uh, Oregon had a huge hospital capacity problem. I want to talk more about your campaign. We're going to head into a break. Alex, hold on. And we got some more great questions for you on the other side. Thank you. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show. This is Jason Williams. I'm sitting in for Georgine. I'm the executive director and founder of the Taxpayers Association of Oregon. I have with me as a guest Alex Garlados. He's a congressional candidate running in House seat number four 
It is identified in the country as one of the most likely seats to switch from a Democrat to a Republican. So suddenly it's getting a lot of money and attention. Alex, as we just discussed, was one of those heroes, one of those Americans who was on that Paris train where the terrorist was attacking people and he helped take him down. He's running for Congress. Um, what do you see, Alex? Uh, what do you see as some of the biggest mistakes that Congress is making now, and how would you do them differently? Well, the biggest mistakes, I think, um, are not passing standalone bills. I mean, this goes for both parties. Mm. But I think if we could just isolate the reasons that Congress votes to pass bills, like take the transportation bill, for instance, um, you know, there was like only three or four hundred billion dollars of a one point three trillion dollar bill that was actually meant for infrastructure. Yes. And if we could just pass standalone bills, because both parties want infrastructure, right? But the party in power, Republican or Democrat, will hold those things hostage to get all their other pet projects passed to just look at the uh, the Democrats just using the burn pit care for veterans as hostage to get all this other stuff put into this most recent bill, and then they beat Republicans over the head for voting no on it. I mean, both parties do this, and it needs to stop, and that's probably the biggest reason why we have such a runaway spending and such a huge national debt in Washington. And, of course, uh, I mean, I would like to see term limits in Congress as well. I mean, the guy that I'm replacing was there for 36 years. Uh, You know, Nancy Pelosi, I think, has been there for about the same, maybe even close to 40 I mean, no one should be in Congress that long. It was never intended to be what it is. Uh, You have a class of people that are just politicians and that have no idea what goes on in their home districts because they've been in Congress for so long. I mean, it's insane. You know, uh, what you say is very true because they they say – this is how they defend it. They say, well, it's good to have congressmen in there for 40 or 50 years because then they gain institutional experience and expertise. Well – they use it expertise to grow the budget, to hide things, to – you know it's like you think that they're in there longer. That experience uh, can be useful. Well, it would be useful if we weren't so much in debt and deficit. Uh, and I like what you said about when you, when you pass bills that are full of – Good stuff and bad stuff. It's almost like you're a little bit of bribery with a little bit of extortion in there. And that infrastructure bill, we got to pay for that. And as you said, you know, things do not look pretty in your district. People do not have, you know, they're uh, we're in a recession. And I think I think you feel that. What are you hearing from people in your district about what is most affecting them? Well, I mean, I. It's the same as everywhere else across the country right now, unfortunately. Like I said before, it's mostly inflation, gas prices, health care access. I mean, it's we've had a struggling economy here in the 4th Congressional District for quite some time. And then on top of, of course, the inflation and gas prices that everyone's seeing across the country. I mean, this is, I, I believe it was Kevin McCarthy that said, the rate of inflation, how it is right now, you work about one month of the year for free just to help pay for the increase in in added inflation. Wow. And that's insane when you actually put it in that perspective. I mean, inflation overall, you're looking at between 8 and 10%. I mean, that's about working one year or one month out of the year for free just to pay for inflation. 
and that's insane. And most people don't realize that that's how much it costs. And you're already paying, you know, or you're already working three, four, five months out of the year just to pay taxes. Then you pay and uh, work another month just to help pay for inflation. I mean, all this stuff adds up. These policies have real consequences. And I mean, the the savings of the average American has dropped significantly. I mean, people are. I've heard, heard there's a story on Fox News the other day that some people are even taking out loans to help pay for groceries, for God's sakes. I mean, this is not healthy. It's not sustainable. Yeah. And it's burning the working class more than anyone else. I like how you said that because, like, as you said, it, t- it takes about a month of working just to pay off the cost of inflation. And now we're seeing that restaurants and spending is going down because people don't have that money. And so now that waitress who has to work a month to pay for extra uh, – to pay for that extra inflation, uh, her tips are shrinking. Uh, and so now it's like you've got this – this uh, uh, say death cycle, but this downward spiral. Uh, and uh, no, I, I like how you say that. And uh, for them to spend you know a trillion dollars for the um, infrastructure and then a you know half a trillion for – or near half a trillion for the the Chips Act, they're spending trillions and trillions, which only makes the inflation worse. Um, so, any other good ideas that you would like to see changed, or things bad things that you would like to uh, to change as well? Um, obviously, a balanced budget amendment of some kind. I ah, think anything nice. we can do to help. So, can you hear me? Yes, yes. A balanced budget um, amendment. I like that idea. Any, anything we can do to help reduce the national debt, I think, would be incredibly important. Um, I mean, we're going to – my generation in particular uh, is going to have to deal with the consequences of this national debt. It's, it's going to come to a head in my lifetime, and it's absolutely not sustainable, and we cannot continue down this road. Uh, I mean, it's very scary to think about where this could lead in the future. Yeah, and I like how you said my generation. You are uh, represent a uh, – a young generation and i know the older generations are just just kind of like down you know down talking look dude we got some heroes uh that are coming up and you need someone who hasn't spent a life in the system uh to kind of say hey this doesn't work i see it with my own eyes so i appreciate the the energy and that you're bringing to it a balanced budget amendment it makes sense doesn't it that you, if you're going to ha- you balance the budget has to be balanced. Uh, I can't imagine that this thing is still being um, – is not an actual law after all these years. Yeah, you'd think. I mean, I I would have loved to have seen someone handle this 10, 20, 30 years ago before we have a $30 trillion debt. I mean, I think even under the Obama administration – uh, everyone was shocked when it hit $8 trillion for the first time. Yeah. And that seems quaint nowadays. I would love to be able to go back to that and solve the problem then. Maybe it would we could actually turn it around. But now it just seems impossible to even turn it around. Yeah. It's such a huge problem, and it's only getting significantly exactly. worse, especially under this administration. But and if people, fair, Republicans add to the debt Alex, as well. Alex, if, if people want to uh, learn more about you, what's the best way? Oh, our website is alec4oregon.com, A-L-E-K-F-O-R-Oregon.com. Uh, we've got all of our issues and platform, and, of course, if anyone wants to donate, we'd appreciate that as well. 
Yes, yes. And um, are you seeing a lot of some people that are change their mind about where Oregon is going and say that, hey, we've had enough? Are you seeing some of that on the campaign trail? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we're doing very well with voters in the middle. I mean, everyone knows that the path that we're on is not good for the country. I mean, people have seen the mistakes that the Biden administration has seen between, you know, the Afghanistan withdrawal, which was very personal for me, spending time in Afghanistan, nine-month deployment right before the terrorist attack happened, Uh, seeing how we withdrew and losing 13 American lives for absolutely no reason was infuriating. Um, And then, of course, you know, seeing the inflation increases, the gas prices, these massive spending bills that they claim to solve the problem only make it worse. Um, You know, it's just disaster after disaster with the Biden administration. It's unfortunate, but unaffiliated voters and independent voters and people in the middle are swinging Republican. Yeah, Uh, uh, as a way to kind of close the segment, I want to say you're exactly right. When you talk about middle of the voters changing, the polls show the independent voters are moving against Biden by like, it's like 70%, somewhere in that range. It's just, So what you're seeing going door to door is very real. Alex said the best way to kind of catch him is it's at Alex for Oregon. It's Alex with a K. I want to say thank you for being here and hang with me. We got still more on the show. Thank you for Alex. And once again, uh, we'll be right back on the Georgine Rice Show. Thank you. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show. This is Jason Williams, Taxpayer Association of Oregon founder and executive director. Been doing it for 20 plus years. Glad to lower your taxes. Um, hey, this, this final uh, bit, I want to talk about something very important that happened this summer. I call it the summer of sabotage where churches were vandalized and attacked in the Portland area all summer long. And the media picked up a little bit of it. I picked up on every bit of it that I could find and record. Uh, and I want to talk about it because we we almost ended um, with it dying out, but then a, a church was attacked just a few days ago before, uh, before Labor Day weekend. And uh, obviously it all started with – when the Supreme Court earlier on in the summer made their decision on the Dobbs decision uh, to on abortion, and that suddenly woke up the Portland protesters, rioters. We're talking anarchist, a little bit of Antifa in there, of course, and they started attacking churches. There was a, a Catholic church and a Catholic school that was hit. Um, they basically wrote on the 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 leaderboard to the school. That you know, if abortions aren't safe, neither are you. And I just thought, man, that was that was so cold to have kids show up to school with a, a, a threat um, to them. There was, um, and that was that was a political attack. But this attack that just happened last week, it was a, a Presbyterian St. Andrew's Church. They were hit, and uh, you know, some this was more of a criminal attack where they just went in there and they just vandalized the church. They wrote, you know, God is not real. They broke stuff. They just went into every room spray painting. They went into the children's nurseries and smoked pot. Apparently they have enough time to do that. Um, they really ransacked this church, St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church in Portland. 
And uh, but here was the thing. So KGW did a, a show on it, and the, the person's walking around the church, and the the lady at the church says, "I, I have to read this." She says. She also wonders if those responsible for the mess are hurting in some way. So she says, you know, on camera, we forgive you. We don't wish you any harm to the people that did this. This is Sanderson Dowdy talking. We want you to know that we are community and through we've been hurt by this, but we're responding in love. And I just love that, that there, that as a church got hit, that they were able to speak before. I mean, 80,000 people are probably watched this broadcast. And there, she, people saw the, the damage that was done to the church. And she says, we still love you who did this. We think you're hurting. Wow. That was a very special moment. But as I said, um, that was just <laughs> that was number two church that got attacked. There was actually an African-American church that got vandalized this summer. Uh, one of the biggest to be hit was Henson Baptist Memorial. Um They uh, actually got hit in broad daylight, about 50 people, all dressed in black, head to toe, covered faces, descended on Henson Memorial in the middle of the day. And um, now Henson Memorial did what a lot of churches do is if they know that there's a protest nearby, they start boarding up their windows. A lot of churches did that in Portland. They boarded up their windows if people were going to protest in a nearby park. Uh, So – um, they weren't able to destroy what they wanted to, but they spray painted and vandalized the church. There was a uh, photographer there, a freelance photographer. They went after the freelance photographer saying, you can't take pictures of us doing this. This is the middle of the day. They are wrecking this church on the outside. They break this lady's camera. I think they throw her to the ground. I mean, this is this is terrible. Now, the police were did not get involved and – they can't get involved because if they go in and they arrest someone for spray painting, they will write a police report. It will go to the district attorney who is super liberal, and that district attorney will say, oh, well, we don't have time uh, for riot protest charges, so it's not going anywhere. So the police, they just – they feel like they can't arrest these people. So this church was attacked. Now, it got a little bit worse because Henson Memorial, bless their hearts – has a pregnancy charity that's a block away. And so the protesters and the anarchists and writers, they went there and they broke out all of their windows. This is a pregnancy charity that tries to raise money and help give counseling and lead them to state services. And they totally ransacked the outside of that pregnancy charity. And this happened to a lot of pregnancy charities. They're they're called crisis pregnancy charities. Centers. There was one in Portland. All of their front windows knocked out. Uh, once again, this is because the writers and anarchists and Antifa are mad at the Supreme Court decision, and they feel like the pregnancy charity centers they're run by Christians, and they're on an alternative to an abortion. So they just they destroyed that. Now in Gresham, they had a charity, a crisis pregnancy center. Someone threw in the middle of the night a firebomb that set their office on fire. Wow. And I'm probably sure you heard how in Salem, Oregon, right to life, someone threw a Molotov cocktail uh, at their front door in the middle of the night. Luckily, it did not go off um, and uh, caused more damage. There was a (laughs) – 
a, a place called Dove Medical Center in Eugene that does pregnancy services. About 70 rioters marched on that center. Luckily, the police stopped them. The, there was about uh, um, seven officers that were injured. But imagine that. I mean, did you hear that story that about 70 people all dressed in black tried to vandalize and take down a a medical center that services pregnant women? It's, it's a pregnancy charity, um, and it was all political driven. They also hit a place called Mother and Child in Portland. It's, it's a house that gives out free clothes to pregnant women. Um, they hit that place, and they hit it with um, human waste, if that's the way I could best say it. Then they came back a few weeks later and just did broke, – broke their windows, spray-painted threats. Um, this was interesting because this place was actually run by uh, – this pregnancy charity home was run by a pro-choice person. And so she's telling the news, hey, why are you attacking me? Um, but they didn't care. The anarchists didn't care. Uh, with these ch- attacks, here is another example. In the Willamette Week, uh, they reported that that uh, five Mormon churches and properties are now up for sale because Mormon churches are closing in Portland. And when they asked the Willamette Week, said, "Why are you guys closing?" and they said, "You know what? It's the riots and the lawlessness in Portland. They're actually causing places, churches to close. People are leaving Portland." And Willamette Week said most of those people that are leaving from uh, the Mormon churches, we're talking like five of them, five different churches and buildings. They're actually moving to Idaho and Nevada because they want to be safe. But this is kind of the anti-church that got hit. That Some of it got caught up in politics. Some of it was just part of the lawlessness that encourages you know gang members to come in and break things. But um, but there is this this anti-religious spirit here, anti-Christian. There was a rally on the night of the Supreme Court decision. The Socialist Democrat organization in Portland put on a rally. A thousand people showed up. Uh, we had a reporter there, and they had all kinds of signs, but it was about abortion rights. But people showed up with anti-religion signs. There were people who said, um, you know, that um, one person had a sign that says, uh, called Christians Christo-fascist. Uh, there was another sign, I'm looking at it right now, like radical Christianity, radical Islam, what's the difference? There was calls to burn the court down. There were calls from the podium to burn things down, and much less people waving signs. There was um, people saying that God performed the first abortion. I don't know what that sign means. Um, so people were rallying in Portland for all kinds of political causes, but um, polit- but just this anti-church, anti-Christian um, expression that is that has attacked these seven churches that were attacked this summer. This is big. Um, and when I want to talk about the break, I want to talk uh, on the other side about some of the things that um, else we experienced about how some of the church is dealing with this and a confrontation at a concert, a Christian concert here that happened recently. So hang with us to the other side. We'll see you there on the Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show. Georgine is out on vacation. Bless her heart for doing that. She needs it. And so this is Jason Williams. I am executive director and founder of the Taxpayers Association of Oregon. And we were talking about how churches were vandalized this summer, some of it political, some of it crime. They're getting caught up in the in the Portland crime wave. And we talked about how, man, there was almost like a dozen churches or pregnancy charities that were vandalized, graffitied, sometimes firebombs were thrown into them, fires were started. Uh, I want to go back to one incident that happened during COVID that I think um, uh, represents – uh, kind of the struggle Portland has with people going after churches, going after people because of their their faith. But it has a good ending. So hang with me. I want to finish with a, a positive story here. This was in the middle of COVID, first year of COVID. It was August. Sean Foich, the singer, worship leader, said he was going to come to Portland at the Waterfront Park, have a free outdoor concert to worship God. And immediately – which, by the way, I, I, I admire that because when you look at COVID, almost no one was doing outdoor events. Now, you weren't supposed to, but I tell you, church people were – you really got to see a lot of people wanted to be able to gather together. Um, and the first people to do that were based on politics and people motivated by religion. Um, anyways, so Sean Foich, he holds this concert. Obviously, word gets out to the anarchists and the Portland protesters and the rioters, and so they show up, a few dozen of them. They show up with bullhorns, and some of them show up with signs. There was a person, she made sure to be right near the front of the concert with a big sign saying, Jesus is a white supremacist. And uh, and so these people with the bullhorns, they, they were going to do what they always do, and that is shout everyone down, cause chaos, so it so it, nothing happens and scare people. They were chanting for the bullhorn, these chants that talked about, you know, uh, blue lives don't matter or, you know, blue lives don't exist, which, which is their way of saying, if you're a cop, you're not a human being. So they were doing anti-cop slogans. They were um, doing anti-Trump. Uh, then they had this one chant. I tell you, I, I was able to record it just because people wouldn't believe what they said, but they are actually chanting. So here are all these people at the worship concert, Waterfront Park, trying to worship God, and you have these few dozen people all screaming out. This is what they screamed. Jesus was not God. He was killed by mistake. And they kept repeating it. Now, what happened? So I'm here. I'm kind of reporting on this. I did an article on it. And even though these protesters are trying to be as obscene as possible, you know, Jesus is a white supremacist, Jesus wasn't God, it did not affect a single person. First of all, they couldn't do much because there was a thousand people that showed up at the waterfront park. And they were there, they were happy, they were celebrating, they were worshiping. And even though they had a person with a bullhorn right there, they just kept worshiping. It was almost like they weren't even there. I mean, wow. And I I just think these people were professional agitators. And they were there, these writers. They had intimidated other people and other events throughout Portland in these past two years. And people had to cancel events. They didn't cancel this one. And it was almost as if people weren't there. And you know what? I just want to say 
I was so proud of my brothers and sisters in Portland who were able to worship and not confront the agitators and worshiped even though they were being screamed at and had a smile on their face, faith. And uh, I just want to say it made me real proud. I want to say thank you to all of those people that were there. Thank you to the Christians, my brothers and sisters out there in Portland. You guys have been doing well. I know Portland is on fire. I know there's a lot of extremism, but you have been a role model. Now, uh, it's interesting. So Sean Foyt gave that concert, and this is what he said. And he was amazed by how many people turned out in Portland. He wrote at the time, my kids witness history in Portland tonight. For me, this is all about the next generation, what we leave behind for them. We must choose revival. We saw thousands and thousands gather blocks from violent streets without fear and sing their hearts out. Actually, the waterfront park was just a few blocks from the federal courthouse where there was 120 days straight of rioting. In the middle of that, a few blocks away, they were doing this worship concert. Okay, I, uh, anyways, back Sean Foyt saying they saw hundreds get radically saved and set free. We watched hundreds of people run down to the river and get baptized. Yeah, people got baptized there right in the river in there in Portland. And um, so he was just like the Jesus movement, the Jesus people movement. Um, they did an altar call. There was a gang member that came forward. There was a guy who came and dumped all of his drug paraphernalia on the altar. Um, I actually saw someone jump off a bridge right there, and there was the the police had to come. We believe the person was pulled out, but that to me at that moment, at that the fact that at that worship concert, that someone had jumped, probably taken their own life, shows you. What environment was going on in Portland? Um, and that is that is why we need to to have these concerts and have people out there worshiping and and doing that. Um, now, from there, Sean Foyt went up to do a worship concert in Seattle, which was also quite. I mean, we're talking. This is August of 2020, the height of the pandemic, the height of the of the, the racial riots. Um, and there is a, a video and I'm going to try to explain it. And I, I, I'd love to go find it again, but Sean Foyt put it up on his Facebook. Once again, the protesters were there, the, the rioters and the anarchists were there in Seattle and they were trying, they were screaming at the people who were worshiping and the people that were worshiping. And you could see in this video, the people that were worshiping on one side and then right next to him, the people that were screaming and yelling everything in the book on him. And the people were jumping up and down and the, uh, and the person says, man, the more that we scream at them, the more that they just jumping down up and even more, it's not working. <laughs> that to me, it was just a beautiful picture that no matter how much people yelled at them to intimidate them and to, uh, to to get them to get angry, they didn't. They only jumped up and down, worshipped even more, sang even louder. It was a beautiful moment. I just wanted to end off on that note because, look, uh, as I talk about these churches being vandalized, I'm not trying to do a misery parade uh, here and overwhelm you with negativity. I really want to, first of all, report to you, yeah, churches are closing, churches are being vandalized. It's bad, but I also want to share that story about that. 
on um, the person on KGW being interviewed about her church being beaten up and how she says, we were praying for the people who did it and we love them. That was a special moment. And I wanted to share with you that moment in that concert in Portland where the writers showed up and they tried to shut that concert down and people acted like they weren't even there. They were so happy to sing with Jesus. I just think that is speaks so much. And I want to I want to use those people as examples for the rest of you because I know man we you're going to hear a lot of crazy stuff happening in Portland. I know I report on it every single day. I follow this stuff. But keep your eyes on the prize. Keep your eyes on the unseen, not the seen. What these people did with the worship and celebrating God in the midst of a riot, in the midst of intimidation and harassment, it's beautiful. Use them as a role model. Uh, I am so proud of you. I think the the church is going to shine. I think our faith is going to be so big and beautiful. Our light is going to shine twice as much because of where we are and what is happening around us. Do you understand that? You your words are almost twice as important because you are here in Oregon, because uh, because people are hearing so much noise and negativity. Your love counts twice as much at these hurting times and at these crazy times. So I leave you with that positive note. Thank you for listening in to the Georgine Rice Show. Thank you for allowing me as a host. Thank you for listening in, and I wish you a wonderful, wonderful approaching weekend. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.